Specialty Story, session number 87. Whether you are a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. Welcome to Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, your host here every week, where I have the privilege of interviewing physicians about their specialty. Now, picking a specialty can be one of the most stressful things that a medical student has to do. And hopefully with this podcast, we make that process a little bit easier. Now, this week, I have a great discussion with an academic sleep medicine specialist, Dr. Jairo Barentes. Now, Dr. Barentes has been out of his training for almost five years and does a lot of different things, but the core of what he does is sleep medicine. Now, as, as a sleep medicine doc, you can do critical care, you can do some pulmonology as well, but we talk about academic sleep medicine, and we begin by talking about what drew Dr. Barentes into sleep medicine to begin with. Well, uh, my first interaction with the sleep medicine was through my pulmonary and critical care fellowship. It happens that at that time, my program director was the head of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, and it was a lot of research going on in the place I did training. And we were mandated to do a monorotation in the sleep fellowship, and that was the time that uh, a we grandfather to sleep medicine, meaning that you didn't need to do a full fellowship in the sleep in order to become a sleep certified as far as you take your OR test. So by the time I finished my pulmonary critical care, things changed. And uh, at that time, it was mandatory to do the full year of training. And I think that was uh, something very exciting because uh, during the month of uh, training that you have as a, a pulmonary physician is too little to get exposed to the reality of what sleep medicine is and the different diseases that you get to see since uh, sleep medicine is uh, 90 to 80 percent of sleep apnea. That is the training that you get as a pulmonologist, only the sleep apnea part, but you don't really get to get exposed to the other diseases that sleep medicine entails. And it's very exciting. Uh, it opened up many different doors, uh, narcolepsy, other parasomnias, and insomnia are the main focus of sleep medicine these days, but there are more than that, and uh, especially in children. So it's, it's a very fine specialty where you get to get the opportunity to see children, women, adults, geriatrics, all in one, and uh, all of them with the objective to get a better quality of life so that I uh, fulfill my goal as a physician and as a human being as well. What traits do you think lead to someone being a good sleep medicine specialist? Most people choose it for the schedule because it's very gentle in terms of uh, being uh, Monday to Friday and uh, not having any calls, literally. You are on call for the lab, but it's very occasionally that you get a phone call from the sleep lab at nighttime to try to clarify an order or if a patient is not doing right, you assist the technicians where to lead the patient either 
going back to the hospital or going home or whatever is needed overnight. But that happens very, very infrequently. So many people choose sleep medicine as a lifestyle. But uh, I think what really takes to be a good sleep physician is to have a good understanding of uh, the pulmonary and brain physiology because uh, it's a great interaction between all the organs at nighttime. And as you might be aware, we sleep about uh, 33% of our life. So we sleep many years. Yeah. And that part of the time uh, of your life, nobody really cares about it. But there are periods, uh, that period of time covers uh, a lot of the changes that happens that we are not aware because uh, your metabolism slows down and uh, your brain function slows down. And that is a recovery. It has a immunology component. Many things that people are not aware, but uh, actually many people die during the sleep and they don't even knew it. Mm. <laughs> so the reason why they die is because uh, when you go in searches of stress and you were already with the metabolism down, those surges of stress and your body is already deconditioned. You, that's the point that you have a heart attack and you didn't knew about it. You just learned at that time when you're waking up and then after you suddenly have the chest pain or you have the stroke. <laughs> if you wake up. If you wake up, right. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about the, the patients that come to see a sleep specialist. You mentioned CPAP and sleep apnea. Obviously, it is a big one that I think the majority of students will know about what are some of these other conditions that people are coming to see you for? Well, I have a great variety. I do practice in both in children and adults. So you can choose to do only adults or only pediatrics, so you can do both as I do. So in the children's side, the most frequent concern is parents who have difficulty with children that they cannot sleep or they sleep in different schedules that the family is sleeping. That's truly bothersome because that impairs the working schedule for parents during the daytime since they are sleep deprived. So behavioral insomnia of the childhood is the 80% consult of the pediatric side. And uh, the rest of the time is uh, children who have uh, a sleep apnea. But the interesting part in children is that the sleep apnea in children is often misdiagnosed as HDHD. So people would think that these kids are a, have ADHD and they prescribe them medications, stimulants to keep them awake and keep them focused during the day. But the reality is these kids are sleep deprived because they poor quality of sleep. So they have sleep apnea and they haven't been treated for years and uh, they have been in medications to keep them awake. And suddenly you go ahead and treat the sleep apnea and these kids' behavior improve and they come off of the medications. So it's overdiagnosed by pediatricians and by family doctors of uh, ADHD. And it is considered that about uh, 40 of those children who have ADHD, what they truly have is a sleep apnea. So the rest of the console of the pediatric clinic is uh, children with parasomnias. So parasomnias are irregular behaviors during the sleep time. So banging the head at bedtime when they are sleeping and uh, banging the hands or banging the whole body is very frequent. And enuresis is a big component of that as well. So children who don't achieve maturity of the bladder control at 18 months to five years when it's normal, those are the kids that come and console us. In the adult side, it's a little bit more exciting in the sleep apnea part because uh, uh, obesity and uh, narrow airways lead to have uh, a sleep apnea. So that is more easy to notice in adults, and that's the main ticket. 
But there are other difficulties for sleep. So people who deal with insomnia, there are multiple things that we can do different than just prescribing a medication to help them sleep. There is more than that in the insomnia area. I actually do like using uh, common devices like fitness trackers to help patients who have insomnia to develop a better sleep pattern. Actigraphy is the gold standard to diagnose uh, circadian rhythm disorders and insomnia. Well, insomnia, that's a clinical diagnosis, but we use uh, the sleep trackers to know what is the best sleep schedule for these uh, patients. So I do use uh, Fitbits and other devices that are commercially available as a substitute for the actigraphy. The actigraphy is very costly and the wearable devices that we have for fitness are relatively cheap these days. So there are a better alternative to help people with circadian rhythm disorders. Uh, For example, people who have jet lag, people that have a sleep phase delay sleep disorder or advanced sleep disorder. So what that means is that you just you sleep right, but you sleep at the wrong time. So the teenagers, they go to sleep around uh, 1 a.m., 2 a.m., and they wake up at 11, and uh, people think that they are is lazy or they are slackers. Not really. They just have a different sleep pattern, and uh, unfortunately, that has a very big repercussions in the school. In fact, in Minnesota, people is having uh, children starting a school later, like 9 a.m. or 10 a.m., and they perform a lot better mm-hmm. in the state's test, the standardized test, because they perform when they are not sleep-deprived, and they do way better. So that probably will come with the GRs to be a normal practice, but that will disrupt the parents' schedule because we, we work in a different schedule during the daytime. Mm-hmm. But, uh, well, if people who have Parasomnias also, they do, uh, for example, start acting their dreams and they think they are playing karate in the middle of the night. <laughs> and uh, that obviously is dangerous for the bed partner or they can injure themselves because they are truly asleep when they are acting the dreams. And uh, they can uh, hurt themselves with sharp objects in the house or they fall off of the mattress. And if they are older, they fracture everything when they fall off the mattress. So there are different things that are there to be treated mm, different than sleep apnea and the sleep medicine is uh, way more than that. You mentioned that you don't have to take a ton of call. Call isn't a, a big thing with with sleep medicine. I'm assuming it's, it's, there aren't really sleep emergencies other than you, you mentioned the sleep lab that's running the lab at night when, when people are trying to be studied. Are there any reasons why you would ever have to go in for something at night uh, when you're on call? Never. Yeah. In fact, I'd never been back into the lab. The only time that I did it was during my fellowship, uh, during the pulmonary fellowship. We have a in-hospital sleep lab, mm. and uh, one patient had a heart arrest during the, <laughs> during the sleep study, but uh, that's the unusual. Most of the sleep centers are outpatient mm-hmm. sleep facilities. So that's very convenient for many people just to have an area where you have a short time sleep training that is one year only instead of a three years or two years fellowship. In pediatric medicine, most of the fellowships are three years. Uh, so for pediatricians, it's very attractive to have one year of fellowship. And the salary is not bad at all for the amount of uh, extra training you do after your internal medicine or pediatrics or psychiatry. The salary is very similar to what your primary specialty is, for example, internal medicine, and it will give you 
30 or 40 percent extra without doing calls and without calling weekends and uh, no having a lot of uh, labs to interpret in your in basket and it's just more time dedicated to interpret your uh, sleep study and depending where you work they build time for your sleep interpretation sleep study interpretation during the schedule so you have your uh, schedule closed for a couple of hours so you can do the sleep studies for the night at that time and um, since uh, many people stay away from sleep medicine these days and mostly it's because the economical reimbursement about uh, 20 years ago, the golden age of sleep medicine, the reimbursement was way better than a neurosurgeon or better than a cardiothoracic surgeon. Oh. So suddenly Medicare adjusted the prices and uh, now you get a glorified internist <laughs> salary without calls. And that is not bad at all, but uh, it's not obviously as good as it used to be 20 years ago when people used to just uh, work at 10 years and retire. It was way better <laughs> to be a dermatologist. Uh, it was better to be a sleep doctor. Yeah, Those golden age are gone, but uh, uh, still, uh, it's a very mellow specialty to go through and the amount of diseases is limited. It's about uh, 20, 25 conditions uh, with different subdivisions. Compared when you do uh, general internal medicine, there are thousands of conditions that you have to treat. Yeah. Or if you are a cardiologist, it's a totally different game plan compared to what sleep medicine is. Describe a typical day. Well, uh, usually you go to the office and uh, most of the patients prefer not to schedule the sleep studies early in the morning. So you do a sleep study interpretation from 8 to uh, 11 in the morning. And then after you do your clinic, that goes at 11 to 12, you have a break, 30 minutes to have your lunch. And then after you go back to clinic and you finish your clinic around 4 p.m. And uh, you wrap up, you go home. So if you are tech savvy, you can finish your notes very quickly and pretty much you're leaving before 5 p.m. to go home. If you're not that tech savvy with the electronic records, that may take you a little bit more of time. And then after uh, you stay longer or you go and pick up your children from the school and then after finish your notes from home. And that happens Monday to Friday. That's it. Yeah. Do you feel like you have enough time for family? Uh, when I do my sleep part, I do. Yeah. Absolutely. That's my break from the hectic schedule of the critical care or the pulmonary life. Yeah. So the sleep medicine is, uh, is my break when I take my daughter for ballet classes and uh, whatever else she needs to do, uh, come on or other activities this so my, my sleep week is the time that I catch up with her. Now, you're in an academic setting. Why choose to practice sleep medicine in an academic setting versus out in the community? The opportunities for research in a sleep are wide open. Since it's a very young specialty, is the area where you can develop a career. Sleep medicine has about uh, 40 years to the tops. So it truly started developing in the last uh, 25 years. So there is plenty of areas to do research and um, in the private sector, you don't get the opportunity to do research. You focus more in treating the sleep apnea. That is what generates the money and the cookies. So the sleep research part, you have to be linked to an academic center in order to develop it. Since it's so young, there is many areas that you can start doing research and it's not difficult to start publishing in sleep or to start developing new knowledge in sleep because everything is still new. So there is plenty of things or areas that you can do it. But in order to develop that, you need a little bit of protected time. You need uh, access to somebody who support you from doing the 
statistics interpretation, help you to coach you how to write articles properly and uh, things that the university-based uh, practice do have available and the variety of patients in private practice, the variety of patients is uh, less. The academic centers, is they are referral centers, so they have more complicated cases. So if you are going to write case reports and things like that, it's more easy to do it from the academic side. Plus, I consider myself a teacher by nature, so I love the teaching part. So being attached to a center that has a sleep fellowship is very gratifying. What does the training path look like to become a sleep specialist? Well, there are different ways. Essentially, you have to have a base specialty. From there, you can apply to sleep medicine. You can become a sleep physician from being a general internal medicine, or you can be from general pediatrics. You can be from pulmonary critical care, or you can be from psychiatry or even from psychology. So, uh, What about neurology? I think I've seen oh, neurologists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did that one. Yeah, neurology as well. Okay. Right. So you finish your basic neurology, and after that you can do a year of a sleep medicine or fellowship, and after that you become a sleep specialist. You take your boards for sleep, and you become a diplomat. Uh, and after that, uh, these days is very easy to find a job <laughs> because uh, in the last 10 years, uh, the doctors who were practicing sleep medicine, they weren't board certified. Mm-hmm. Since uh, they didn't ever have a formal training, when the board came over, it was very difficult for those physicians who were practicing without formal training to pass the board. Since uh, there is not a lot of uh, monetary reimbursements as it used to be 20 years ago, these people just shy away and they haven't study back in order to take the board. So the amount of uh, sleep physicians available these days is less because uh, there are no enough formally trained physicians. And since the salary is just a step up of the general specialty, many people decide that investing one more year is that no border time. But what they don't see in the big picture is that the schedule is fantastic. And if you have a practice of mix of your base specialty and something else and sleep, it becomes very easy to work with the schedule because that gives you a lot of flexibility. So in my case, I, I just can do a week of critical care and I do 12-hour shifts and the next week I'm in the sleep part. So I have those weekends off and that time that I'm not in night call. Same for pulmonary. and um, I get the payment as a pulmonary critical care physician. I don't get the salary as a sleep doctor but I do work less hours compared to my other co-workers. And uh, these days, uh, everything is reimbursement. So the amount of RBUs that you can generate from sleep is significantly higher than what you can generate from being a primary pulmonologist. So it generates a lot of RBUs. That means that they give you more forgiveness in time and uh, you can achieve the same expectations from the hospital without working extended hours, or if you are paid by incentive, if you reach certain amount of RBUs a year, you certainly reach those RBUs with the sleep part that you will never reach just with the pulmonary part alone. Or if you do psychiatry, you will never reach those RBUs with the psychiatry work. Same with neurology. So the sleep part gives you a faster pathway to reach those uh, incentives and be gratified with monetary compensation for that. How competitive is it to match into a, a sleep 
fellowship? Uh, not at all. <laughs> People doesn't know what sleep medicine is, so not yet. People don't even apply, <laughs> right? Right now, it's surging, but uh, in a few years, it's going to surge when people start getting desperate with the RBUs. Yeah. So uh, it's relatively simple these days. There are about uh, 60 programs uh, that are uh, board eligible. And from those 60 programs, they struggle to fill the positions. About uh, 60% of the positions get filled, and 40% they are left over. So if you are in a primary specialty and you did your primary specialty in a hospital that wasn't the most academic one and now you get a get a really good state-of-the-art training in a famous institution sleep medicine is the way to go you can get a, a one of the ivy league schools uh, for sleep medicine <laughs> uh, very easily and get you will never get cardiology there <laughs> <laughs> once somebody is trained in sleep medicine do they tend to further subspecialize not really. Once you get into sleep medicine, you choose your niche of practice. And uh, depending where is your niche, if, for example, if your background is neurology, most of people who does neurology and sleep, they tend to focus in uh, circadian rhythm disorders and uh, seizures and movement disorders during the sleep rather than doing general uh, sleep apnea. They still do everything, but uh, that's the main focus for them. In my case, it's mostly sleep apnea and uh, use of non-invasive positive pressure ventilation at night for uh, special populations. What I call special populations are children who have uh, facial malformations or they have uh, different trisomies or some other conditions that left them with very narrow airways and they have uh, severe sleep apnea and require tracheostomies or advanced ventilators or non-invasive positive pressure ventilation at nighttime or patients who have ALS, uh, they become dependent in non-invasive positive pressure ventilation at nighttime and during the daytime. So that's an area that I do like a lot, and uh, it's my expertise. So you, you choose your, your niche of practice, and it's very simple to find that niche of practice uh, once you graduate, so you don't need further specialization after you finish. What do you wish primary care providers, whether they're pediatricians, family practice, internal medicine, what, did they, what do you wish they knew about what you're doing as a sleep medicine specialist? Well, I will wish that they know that the sleep medicine is more than a sleep apnea <laughs> because these days uh, people consider sleep uh, medicine just as a different way to prescribe the CPAP or the BiPAP. And that's not truly uh, what the sleep medicine entails. Uh, it is a lot of knowledge and a lot of uh, different opportunities to treat the patient better. So they should be aware that sleep medicine is more than that. And there are many diseases that are preventable or better treated when uh, you have a better sleep pattern at life. So for example, if you have diabetes and you have a good sleep and your sleep apnea is controlled, your insulin requirements go down by 30-40%. And the same will happen with people who have hypertension. They have some drop in the amount of medication they are requiring for sleep apnea, excuse me, for uh, hypertension when they have a uh, treatment of their sleep apnea or if they have treatment for their insomnia. So if these physicians were aware that the sleep component of life is so significant and having a good quality of sleep was, is significant and gets better productivity to the human being, they will refer earlier to us or they will be uh, more enticed to know more about sleep medicine so they can do basic practice in their practice of the sleep disorders. As a general internist, you can prescribe the CPAP study, the CPAP titration, the sleep study, 
even the CPAP supplies. Mm. But if you don't have the basic knowledge and you don't have interest in that, it turns to divert the patient to a sleep specialist. Very often, it's difficult to find a, an appointment with a sleep specialist because there are not many of us these days. So it may take up to six months or eight months to get a, a sleep specialist ab- available. And uh, that puts you at risk for extra time or many patients decide just not to pursue it any longer because they cannot find anybody to see them. What other specialties do you work the closest with? From the sleep part is uh, mostly pulmonologist, bariatric surgeons, a psychiatrist and child psychiatrist that they are trying to rule out sleep apnea as a trigger for ADHD and for enuresis. And um, very closely, we work with the ALS population, so neurologists who have patients with ALS or any spinal trauma, we do work very closely with them. Our cardiologists as well. Sleep apnea referrals from cardiology and endocrinology are high to us. They are trying to get better control of uh, irregular heartbeat at nighttime or daytime. You happen to decrease 40% the frequency of relapses of uh, atrial fibrillation after ablation when you treat your sleep apnea. So we have a lot of referrals from the cardiologist. Are there any special opportunities outside of clinical medicine for sleep specialists? Commercial devices are always looking for people who are developing new technologies. So if you get to work with one of the companies who develop non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, there are opportunities to go in the commercial side and research side with them. So if you want to pursue that, absolutely. If you want to make your laboratory as a, a private laboratory, as a center for referral for research, it is very possible to do it. So you will not be part of the protocol, but if your center is standardized and need a fulfill all of the conditions of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, you will be able to get research going on in your lab 24-7 if you want to do that because uh, there are uh, different things that we are testing all the time since the science is developing. So there are private doctors who decide just to devote all the time or 80% of the practice to, to do uh, the tests that are being paid by a research study. What do you know now that you wish you knew before going into sleep medicine? Well, I wish I would be now like a 20 years ago when the golden age of money was. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, actually, when I did my residency in internal medicine as an intern, uh, one of the sleep doctors came and gave us a talk about what sleep medicine was. It was very succinct, but he did mention, I just have plain internist and I have a really good practice. And uh, he was right at that time. He was making a really good income in New York just from sleep medicine with a perfect schedule. These days, it's not that way, but it's still uh, very pleasant to work with. And the population that we work with is uh, patients who are very gratifying. They say, well, doctor, after you put me in that CPAP, uh, this is the best night of sleep I have in years. Now I can think. Now I can drive without falling asleep. Uh, you've changed my life. We have few that they don't adapt well to the non-invasive positive pressure <laughs> ventilation, and they are very... Uh, upset about it, but that's the minority, you know, the majority. The majority, they are grateful for what you do for them. And uh, something that I found very interesting is that you don't need to see your sleep patients very frequently. You can see them every year, and uh, that is enough. And they do very well with that. 
So if you don't like the specialty where you have to follow the patient every single week or every couple of months, uh, sleep medicine is the alternative. So in my case, uh, when I am in the, the pulmonary clinic, often my uncontrolled patients have to see them every month or every couple of months, especially my interstitial lung disease patients. I have to see them pretty much like a, every month. I'm part of their family now. <laughs> and uh, Sometimes that is very demanding on you and it gets very tiring. So sleep medicine is another alternative to do practice pulmonology and critical care in a more relaxed and less overwhelming environment. What do you like the most about being a sleep specialist? This case, that's, that's what I like the most. Yeah. What do you like the least? Uh, what I like the least, I don't think I have anything against sleep. Wow. <laughs> I truly love it. I, I really enjoy it every time I'm in the clinic or every time I'm in the lab. I do really enjoy every single minute that I'm there. So I, I, the only thing that probably sometimes gets you a little upset is uh, uh, patients with insomnia. Uh, they are very difficult to treat. And uh, you end up being a dispenser of uh, controlled medications for them. That's probably the only upsetting part. But as far as you do your job right, those patients are very, very a small amount of your patients. Most of the patients get well with other alternatives and you don't need to go there. Do you see any major changes coming to the field of sleep medicine? As uh, people is becoming more aware of uh, the wellness and better lifestyles, sleep medicine is going to start growing more and more and more. And I think with the next 20 or 10, 20 years, physicians are going to be very aware what are the benefits of having good quality of sleep. And that's going to increase the knowledge that we have in the field. And there will be more physicians uh, coming to learn what sleep medicine is and practice it. So that will lead to both things, better reimbursement and uh, it's going to get you more opportunity to treat other people uh, when the other physicians are aware of what uh, sleep medicine and the benefits of having good sleeps are. If you had to do it all over again, would you still take that extra year of sleep medicine training? Yeah, we'll do it first. <laughs> you do it first <laughs> instead of the other one. Yeah, you probably will not do the pulmonary part if I just did the sleep alone. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> very funny. Uh, I really love my pulmonary clinic, but uh, absolutely the sleep medicine is more gratifying. Good. Any last words of wisdom for the medical student or maybe the, the internal medicine resident thinking about sleep medicine? It's a wonderful field where you can achieve uh, many personal goals in addition to your career. And if you're trying to develop an academic career, it's significantly easier when you do it from the sleep part because there is a blank canvas there to be painted compared to other specialties. So this is a very gratifying specialty to pursue. All right, there you have it again. That was Dr. Jairo Barantes talking about academic sleep medicine and why he loves it. He really, really, really enjoys it. And hopefully it's a specialty that you don't know much about and now you do. And if you're interested in learning more about it, listen to this podcast again and go seek out a sleep medicine specialist that you can potentially shadow and find a mentor to help you with this journey. If you have a specialty that you want covered here on the podcast that we haven't covered before in our previous 86 episodes, just shoot me an email, ryan at medicalschoolhq.net, and we'll try to get that person in and uh, get them recorded. 
I hope this has been helpful for you and we will see you next time here on Specialty Stories. Mm-hmm.